Good morning. Uh, well, it's the uh, 4th of July weekend, and half the pastoral staff is gone. <laughs> so they went deep into the bench. Uh, I might be more comfortable behind a microphone singing with a praise team, but uh, that's not the case today. Uh, so Scott's preaching next week. That's good news. And uh, so I've been looking forward to uh, sharing a few thoughts with you today on, on a communion theme. Uh, senior citizens, as you know, tend to reminisce, and I am one. And uh, so this church is where Jack and I were members for the first seven years of our married life. And if you had told me in 1976, that was 46 years ago for you mathematicians, uh, when we had joined the church that I'd be speaking on July 3rd of 2022, I would, probably would have said, not likely. I just hope I live that long. And, uh, but you never know what God is going to do, do you? And often it's abundantly above all that we could ask or think. So, uh, so today I just want to share a few things. Um, I did have a prophecy that I think almost might be coming true. The cost of gas increases church attendance, 4th of July weekend. <laughs> I'm kind of surprised that there are as many here as there are, actually. And uh, so um, I don't claim to be a prophet, but uh, I'm sure glad you're here this weekend. Just a couple historical thoughts on July 4th. Uh, the Second Continental Congress, which formed after the start of the American Revolution in 1775, voted to declare their independence on July 2nd. The Declaration of Independence, largely authored by Thomas Jefferson, explained the vote, and it was adopted on July 4th. And American independence from the British monarchy was secured eight years later marking the end of the American Revolution in 1783. I actually kind of forgot. It, it was eight years, folks. Um, and after that July 2nd vote, John Adams uh, wrote to his wife, Abigail, and apparently this is a fairly famous uh, note that is circulated. He said the second day of July, well, it turned out to be the 4th of 1776, will be the most memorable epic in history of America. I'm apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows and games and sports and guns and bells, bonfires, illuminations from one end of the continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. As I, as I was reviewing this last night, outside of my office window at home, I could hear the fireworks in the background. I don't know whether it was coming from Roba's farm or from Dalton or wherever, but it was loud. And um, one of them resonated with my window, and it sounded like someone was knocking on the window of my office. It was so weird. But, uh, uh, but anyway, there's great, great celebration and, you know, recent polls in America have reflected some of the frustration. Maybe you've heard of some of these polls that are being taken. And, and uh, 
people might not be as proud of America as we might expect, but I agree with uh, Nikki Haley, former governor of North Carolina, ambassador to the UN. Uh, she said, even in our worst day, we are blessed to live in America. I hope you feel that way. And it's good to remember and celebrate such a victory that won our freedom at tremendous sacrifice over an eight-year period. But it got me thinking about our personal lives. You know, not every memory of the past is one that we want to celebrate, is it? Um, there are some things that we just like to forget, memories that we call regrets, uh, mistakes, maybe some deliberate sinful choices, and rather memories that are easily forgotten, they are regrets that unexpectedly invade our thinking, they undermine our confidence, our freedom to live with a clear conscience. And we know, theologically, we know that God has forgiven sin, but there is a cloud of our conscience, an uneasiness of soul. So today, just a few thoughts on freedom, not political freedom, but uh, freedom of living with a profound sense of God's forgiveness and a clear conscience. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. You're not going to have any help from the PowerPoint this morning till the very end of the message. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, we're going to begin with reading verses 3 through 7. Paul is urging Timothy to uh, uh, set straight some of the false teachers that have been floating around uh, teaching in Ephesus. And uh, beginning with the verse 3, Paul is saying to Timothy, As I urge you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. They promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Let's stop there for a moment. Um, so Paul is giving a command, and here's the command. Do not teach doctrines that are different than what I taught you and confront those who are doing so. Their teaching divides but truth, right doctrine, leads to love. It leads to a God-honoring inner disposition. It leads to a sincere faith. And then in verse 6 and 7, he says, Some will abandon the faith. Some will abandon the truth. They will delve into novel doctrines and genealogies and misunderstanding of the law. And let me just pause parentheses here just for a minute. There, there is a YouTube uh, video that I would encourage all of you to watch. It's called American Gospel, subtitled Christ Alone. And if you, if you um, Google that on YouTube, uh, it is worth watching 
There's a 40-minute version that's free. Now, the full presentation is two and a half hours. I think there's a small charge for it. But it is a wonderful presentation of the gospel. And it contrasts faith plus works salvation with salvation through Christ and Christ alone. And for anyone who is wrestling uh, with, uh, with scripture and, and some spiritual wrestling going on in their, in their experience, it is a wonderful video to watch. I think it's a, a great tool for evangelism. So I would encourage you to uh, check that out on YouTube. There is just the 40-minute version. It's free, and uh, it, it is a tremendous presentation. Well, uh, Paul uses the word conscience 21 times in his letters, as he did here in, uh, in our passage this morning. And the idea is to know, to know with. In other words, our inner conscience or judge, which either accuses us when we do right, wrong, and approves when we do right. And Paul speaks of the importance of a clear conscience numerous times in Scripture. Uh, even John speaks about it in John chapter 3. He says, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commandments and do what he pleases. Uh, I'm not going to give ex much explanation on that verse this morning. Uh, what does it mean, receive anything uh, that we ask? Well, all I want to say about that verse is there is a relationship between a clear conscience and prayer. Uh, Paul giving Timothy instruction and in selecting the deacons. He says deacons must hold to the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. So our purpose today really is to break the chain of nagging memories or regrets that can cloud our conscience and refresh our perspective on God's provision so that we can live and love with a clear conscience and the freedom that really God wants us to enjoy. Jackie and I were in Florida a couple years ago and we visited the Barnum and Bailey Circus Museum in Florida, and, and I, it reminded me uh, of an experience of an individual walking by the area where the elephants were kept in a circus that he was visiting. And he was stunned by the fact that there was no pen, there was no fence, and a very light chain used to tether the elephants. In fact, it, it, it was similar to what most people would use to tether uh, their dog. And he asked the trainer, how can such a light chain keep these full-grown elephants from going free? And the trainer look, looked at him and replied in kind of a quiet voice, the memory. He says, it's the chain we have used since they were born. So I don't know what percentage of you here today struggle quietly with regrets from the past or feel chained to some memory that you drag around now and then. I was talking to Hal Cross before the service. He said something, and I said, can I quote you? He said, uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> he, and he said, um, oh, what are you preaching on this morning? I said, regrets from the past. If it doesn't apply to you, you can just take a nap. He said, no, I'll be listening with white-knuckled anticipation. 
Um, you know, I, I would guess there are more here than, than we may think that struggle with these things. A regret flares up at the most unexpected time, and, you know, it's, it's like a deflated volleyball at the bottom of a swimming pool. Suddenly it inflates, pops to the surface, hits you in the face, and you say, Whew, where did that come from? And Paul is warning Timothy, Timothy, you are to command certain men to stop teaching false doctrine and novel theories which are causing divisions in the church. It's undermining the goal of love and a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And there were some false teachers that were introducing novel doctrines. They did not understand the purpose of the law. And some were leading young believers away from the liberty of grace into legalism. And they wanted to use the law as a standard of conduct to control and achieve conformity. And when, in fact, the law was primarily given to reveal man's inability to live up to God's standards and to reveal our need for salvation. I, I like the way Warren Wiersbe says it. He says, the law without the gospel is diagnosis without remedy. But the gospel without the law is good news for people who don't know they need it because they've never heard the bad news of judgment. And the danger of legalism or religious rule keeping, as I'll call it, is that it leads to, um, I'll call it conformity faith. You can appear holy without really having a change of heart. Conformity faith, I believe, will wear you out. It'll steal your joy. It'll make you critical of others. And if you're haunted by some memories, maybe you need to ask yourself, am I just keeping up appearances? Am I just living a conformity faith without true repentance and a change of heart? And James 1.13 says, each one is tempted by his own desires when he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And just a couple thoughts on longings of the heart. You know, the longings of our heart are a hard master. Um, sometimes the desire draws a person into deliberate sin. Other times uh, the desire or the longing may not seem sinful in itself, but if you want it, too much, it becomes a destructive idol. And it causes sinful responses toward others. I was reading a, a book a while ago called The Coming Evangelical Crisis. And it's a book about the current challenges to the authority of scripture and the gospel. And, but a quote in that book caught my attention. It says, the Christian life is somewhat of a paradox. Those who die to self find self. Those who crave happiness receive misery. Those who crave to be loved will receive rejection. If I crave control, I will receive chaos. If I crave reputation, I will receive humiliation. But if I crave God and his wisdom, I will receive God and his wisdom. Um, 
The longings of the heart can be a hard master when they are allowed to rule you. Well, back to 1 Timothy, verses 9 and 10. Paul alludes to, uh, to five of the Ten Commandments of the law, and he lists 14 kinds of people condemned by the law in verses uh, 9, 10, 11. Uh, let's, let's read them. We, know, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. I mean, Paul is saying, uh, here we, these, these are folks that are condemned by the law. They are the worst of the worst. They might get out on bail in California, but they are, they are the worst of the worst. And Paul's purpose for citing this category, these categories of individuals, these lawbreakers, becomes clear as we read 12 to 15. Verse 12, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And Paul says, you know what? It was to show the magnitude of God's forgiveness. As bad as these lawbreakers were, Paul says, I was worse. And then the crescendo begins as we come to verse 16 and 17. And, and you sense that there is a, a buildup of Paul's emotion. It is welling up inside as he was writing, uh, beginning with verse 16. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's like Paul is saying, the, the God who saved me and forgave me of these terrible things has given me a mission that I can pursue with sincere faith and a clear conscience. I can proclaim to these lawbreakers that they also can have eternal life. And his heart explodes like fireworks into exuberant praise and says, now to the king, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And I, I, as I read that and thought about it, I have to admit, oh man, if only our hearts would likewise burst into that kind of praise as we recall all that God has done for us and all he's forgiven us from and given us his gift of salvation. Um, don't, don't succumb to Satan, the ultimate accuser, and allow memories of the past to to chain you 
but let it cause you to burst into grateful praise as Paul did here. You know, I would venture to say that no one probably struggled with their uh, conscience as much as did Martin Luther. Uh, he enrolled in a monastery, practiced the sacraments, did extensive confession of even the most minute sins. Um, in fact, uh, the story goes that, that on one occasion he was in the confessional booth for six hours. Can you imagine? Reciting the most trivial sins. I, I'm not sure, are there trivial sins? But according to the priest that he was talking to, he, he wearied the priest out. And the priest said, come back when you have something really bad to confess, like stealing or, or adultery or murder. But Luther had a, a philosophical problem. He thought, you know, sins to be forgiven were to be confessed. And sins to be confessed had to be remembered. And if they were not remembered, how could they be confessed? And if they weren't confessed, how could they be forgiven? And the gap between his sinfulness and God's righteousness and his mind grew infinitely, infinitely wider. And he reasoned, if I did manage to confess everything today, what about tomorrow? You know, it's kind of like mopping up, mopping up the floor with a faucet on. Um, I was over at Don and Judy Ellsworth's the other day, and uh, I was doing a little fix, and Judy comes upstairs and says, there's water on the basement floor. And we went downstairs, and sure enough, there was a pretty good-sized puddle on the basement floor. And uh, we uh, examined the thing, and sure enough, the hot water heater was leaking a pretty good stream. So we, so we got the shop back and plugged it in and said, you know what, maybe first we ought to just turn off the valve, turn off the water. So we turned off the water, finally that occurred to me, and began to vacuum up, and uh, you know, we got all the water up and things dried out. And, and, I, and I thought, you know, <laughs> one of those practical things of life that you all of a sudden become a spiritual lesson. Don't you wish we could just turn our sin off that easily, clean it up and be done with it? But that's not the case. Luther was asked to teach a uh, Bible at the monastery and as he, as he taught, he came to Romans 4.3 and it said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And then Luther realized righteousness is both an attribute of God and a gift that he gives to those who believe by faith. And Jesus is the one who meets the standard, not Luther. And I think part of the problem we have sometimes is too many people think of ourselves as, as kind of half-sinners. You know, we believe in the atonement. We understand the, what Christ has done on the cross. And so we apply the atonement, but we think we want to add self-effort to try to really get right with God, to really hit the mute button on our conscience. But there is still an uneasiness of soul. Why? Because I think we have seen ourselves as half-sinners rather than whole-sinners. 
where self-effort is ineffective, ineffective at dealing with sin and dealing with our conscience. And our need of grace and redemption is total. And that is what Christ has won for us. Self-effort that once was an effort to try to please God and win his favor is now motivated once we see ourselves as whole sinners and recipients of the redemption that is fully in Christ. Now our self-effort is motivated by joy and gratitude rather than working for acceptance. It is such a difference. Erwin Lutzer uh, tells a story. He's a radio preacher, former pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. He said, someone in prison wrote to me and said, he listens to our broadcast and says that uh, he has assaulted four women and destroyed their lives. So his question was, can I be forgiven? And Lutzer said, you know, the inclination is to think, well, maybe hell is where he belongs. But then I remembered, this is where we belong. So I wrote back to him and said, I want you to visualize two trails. One is finely traveled with flower beds along the way. The other is a mess, deep ruts, obvious tracks where someone has turned around. It's ugly. Then falls 18 inches of fresh snow. You cannot tell one trail from the other. And his word to this prisoner was, God does not find it harder to forgive a great sinner than a lesser one. And I can't imagine the joy that that prisoner must have felt when he was introduced to Romans 8. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. That's the message to us too. That's the message today. That's the message to those memories, those regrets that may haunt you from time to time. So what's the bottom line? What do we need to remember this morning? Let me wind up with these four things. Number one. It's not forgetting the regrets of the past. I think it's impossible to do that. I think they dim with time, but allowing them to underscore the immeasurable grace of God. I mean, use those memories to draw you to a, to a deeper relationship with the Lord, full of joy, full of gratitude. And when the accuser comes to try to make you feel guilty and unforgiven and ineffective and desires to debilitate you in your service for Christ, I think we need to say what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 14 of 1 Timothy. The grace of God was poured out on me abundantly. And I believe Satan would not delight to accuse you if he knows that that is the kind of response that he's going to get. The grace of God has been poured out on me abundantly. Number two, remember, a measure of grief over past sin is not bad, but be careful. 
And I want to quote Paul Tripp in his devotional book, New Morning Mercies. Grief is good when it mourns what God hates, but it is dangerous when it questions God's goodness and love, and I will add, and forgiveness. Um, And I would say also, be thankful that your conscience has not been cauterized as those described in 1 Timothy 4.2. But there is a certain sensitivity. You just need to make sure that you see your regrets in the perspective of God's forgiving grace. Number three, remember, God will use it all. God does not waste anything. And I believe that he often chooses to minister through people who have had similar or parallel experiences, difficult experiences, whether it be broken relationships or tragedy or failure or drug abuse or deliberate sin. God will use it all if you embrace grace, enjoy the forgiveness of God, and allow God to use those things to minister to others. God will use it all your success, and your failures. And fourthly, remember, the chain of shame is broken in the presence of the cross. And you could substitute the chain of regret, the chain of discouraging memories, the chain of shame. It is all broken in the, in the presence of the cross. So the question this morning, folks, is, particularly as we enter into communion, is, It's not, is God satisfied by your efforts? Here's the question. The question is, is God satisfied by the perfect sacrifice that he provided in your behalf? And the answer is yes and amen.